person in my voice, I guess we'll be okay. If not, pray through and you'll be okay. <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to thank Pastor for giving the opportunity to be here this morning. And I also want to thank him for, for uh, preaching part of my message last week. It was, uh, really, I'm serious about that. I was kind of, uh, had two different directions. I was going to go this morning in addition. And I knew I couldn't do both of them unless you wanted to be here for an hour or two. So, and when he said that, you know, God had changed his message, I thought, thank you, Jesus. And so it kind of helped me as far as a preview to this. So just consider this part two. And in case you weren't here last week, he talked about all of us being uh, in ministry, anointed for service. We're all disciples of Christ. It wasn't just the 12. It wasn't the, the 70 that talks about in Luke chapter 10 or the 120 in the upper room. So that's where I'm starting from. And before I start, I just want to open up with prayer. Father, I just thank you for this day, Lord, that you've given unto us, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for your presence, Lord, that I already sense in this place, Lord. And I thank you for each one that is here today, Lord. And I just ask now, Lord, that you'd anoint your servant this morning as I minister, Lord, the message that you have placed upon my heart, Lord. And I just ask, Lord, that you'd anoint this, this thy people, Lord, to receive the words, Lord, that you have given unto me. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. If you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew, the 28th chapter... I'm going to start out with some scriptures that are very familiar to most of us if you've been in, in church for, for very long. You usually hear this around the time missionaries show up. But in the background of this setting, we know that this is after Jesus has risen from the dead. And it's been 40, 40 days he spent where the people had seen him, the disciples had seen him on and off during this 40 days. Well, this day is kind of, kind of special and kind of a sad time for them because this is the time just before Jesus ascended into heaven. And so all the people were gathered on the Mount of Olives, and I was there, and it's a, it's a big place. And um, it wasn't just the 12 that was there. Some theologians believe that there's upwards of 500 people were there when Jesus spoke these words that we're going to read. And starting in verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. Now those, this teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, in other words, pass this message down from generation to generation to generation. So everyone knows that this message that he just spoke wasn't just to the people that were gathered there. It was for everyone that was, would follow afterwards. Now, if you want to come over, drop over to Acts, the first chapter. Now, actually, these, this chapter, or the first part of this chapter, should be tacked on to the end of Matthew. It was written by different authors, so I guess it was kind of a little hard thing to do. But, <laughs> but I'm glad that they uh, put this in here. And we're going to start with verse 11. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and into the other most parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld him, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, 
as he went up, behold, two men stand by them in white apparel, which also said unto him, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Jesus had just told them to go into all the world. And here's these 500 or onwards, 500,000, doesn't matter. And they hear the message. And they're standing there and they're watching Jesus go up. And they're just standing there, probably the same way we, we would be standing, watching, you know, kind of in belief and unbelief and knowing this is the last time you're going to see Jesus this side of heaven. And they're standing there, and that's all they're doing. They're not doing anything else. And the angels have said, why are you standing here gazing? And, you know, that's where American churches are today. That's where the body of Christ is today. We're standing there. We've been saved. We're redeemed, we're going to heaven, and we're just standing around, we're gazing into heaven, saying, thank you, Jesus. I'm looking for you to come. I'm just waiting for you to come. I'm just waiting here. And that's all we're doing. But we forget about the first part of this message where it says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We think, my four and no more. As long as my family's saved, that's okay. That's all I care about. But Jesus, if you get close to Jesus, you find out that the closest thing to his heart is missions. And the missions field starts outside your door. It doesn't start over in Africa. It doesn't start in some of these third world countries. It starts right here in our own house, in our home, and some of us in our own homes because if our families aren't saved, we live in the mission field. And so Jesus wanted to make sure we're aware of that. And we're gazing into heaven, and we're waiting for someone else to come along and fulfill this commandment. And if we keep waiting and waiting and waiting... How many people are going to hear? So if this is a commandment from Jesus, how do we do this? It seems so overwhelming mission for us to do. But, you know, God doesn't give us anything that we can't do. He doesn't command us to do something that we can't do. And I was kind of looking at that and wondering. Well, first of all, it said, all power is given unto me. And he's given that power to us to do that. If we try to do this in our own power, we're going to fail. Because we can't do it. Because it is so overwhelming. But God didn't want us to do it in our own power. He says, wait until you be endued with power from on high. The problem that people have today and wonder why they can't go out and reach the lost is because they're trying to do it in their own power. And when you do that, you get burnt out. And we're, we, get, we get wore down. And that's when the enemy attacks us when we're weak. And that's how we, he discourages us because then we look at the, oh, the, the fields are white and ready to harvest and there's pray that God will send laborers. Well, guess who the laborers are? It's me and it's each one of you. We're all the laborers and we're all supposed to do this. So I was kind of looking at this and trying to see if I could pinpoint some way that would be easier for us to, to, it, to work on this uh, commission. If you want to turn to John, the first chapter. Starting with verse 42, oh, excuse me, 40. 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now we've got to realize that every Andrew was already a disciple of John because he'd been following John that he heard Jesus. And he realized who Jesus was. And we know that during this time frame, 
All the Jewish people, from the time that they were small children, they were taught about the Messiah is going to come. One day the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign. So every Jewish boy and every Jewish girl who hoped that they would actually be the one that actually uh, gave birth to the Messiah, they were looking for this. Well, no matter what, what area, you, what you did for a living, you knew that the Messiah was going to come. And every generation was looking for him. So Andrew was looking for him when he was following John. And then he learned that Jesus was the Messiah. And so what did he do? He went to his brother. And the thing that he did was got the one thing that he knew could entice Peter to come. And that was, I found the Messiahs. Now, to him, that was music to his ears. That's like somebody saying, come on over here, I'll give you a million bucks. You know, it'd be nice we could just go looking for a million bucks. But the thing we need to realize is that every one of us, all of our family members, has something in their heart, in their life, that they need. We all have a God-sized hole in our heart that only God can fill. And when we, we know our family members better than we know most people, in generally speaking. So we know what it might take for that person to come that we can bring them to Jesus with. Maybe they've lost, lost a loved one in their family or their wife's family or something like that. So you can say, I have found the God of comfort. If they have a, have a need, I have found the God of need. Won't you come and meet him? Bring him to him. Bring him to God through that need. And that's one way to reach our family members and other people, too, if you know them that well. Another, if you want to turn over to chapter 4, just a few pages over. We're going to talk about another something else. And this is a familiar story to a lot of us. It's the woman at the well. Now, for a little background, this woman at the woman doesn't mention her name. And I think that's because Jesus wanted to protect her. So no, her name isn't mentioned. A lot of places, people's names are mentioned, but he left it out. And she was a, uh, well, they actually called her basically a harlot is what she was. She was not the type of person that would, you'd see hanging around in the church. She's not the kind of person that probably you'd introduce your family to. And she came to the well in the middle of the day, which was the worst time of the day to come. It was, you know, the hauling water from the well to back and forth in these big jars was not, you know, the easiest task. But that's what she doing. And she did it because if she came in the morning, that's when all the religious people, that's when all the church-going people came. And if she came, then they would treat her like dirt and make fun of her and call her names and all these other kind of things. So in order to avoid that, she would come in the middle of the day. And here we see Jesus coming up and stopping at this well. And I'll start at verse 4. Well, let's start at verse 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. He must go through Samaria. Jesus had an appointed time to go there. He had an appointed mission there. And there was a day in my life when Jesus had an appointed mission in my life, an encounter in my life that I could come and I could meet the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. And this was a divine appointment that he had planned. Now, this appointment wasn't a normal one. I mean, he went out of his way to go meet with a harlot, meet with someone that wasn't of the religious crowd. And that's what's more inter is really interesting. And, the Samar and Samaria, the Jews didn't like him, and the Gentiles didn't, didn't like him. They were a crossbreed. They were part Gentile and part Jew. 
So they were half-breeds. And so the, nobody liked them. They were basically a continent or a, a nation within themselves because of all that hate and all that prejudice towards them. Verse 5. Then he cometh to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Joseph well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied of his journey, sat down thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or about noon. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. She was so surprised that someone of his caliber would talk to her that she thought she'd better remind him that he's not supposed to be doing that. Because they don't talk to them, because they don't have anything to do with them. As far as they're concerned, they're dogs. But Jesus ignored all that, and he says, he answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest ask of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence art thou that having living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, would gave us this well, and drank thereof, and his children, and his cattle? This is a problem that we have a lot of, with a lot of people, especially in this area. She was looking at the physical realm, and Jesus was talking about the spiritual. She was wanting the things in the physical, and, and God was trying to get her, or Jesus was trying to get her to look beyond the spiritual realm. And he said, if you knew the gift of God that was here. And so, <clears throat> then he would give her living water. And living water, she thought, man, this is cool. This would be great if I didn't have to come and draw here anymore. Let's read, let's read on. The woman said to him, sir, thou hast... Okay, let's see I read that. Uh, verse 13. Jesus answered and said unto him, Whosoever drinketh of the water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be like him a well, well springing up for everlasting life. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water I th that I thirst, neither come hither to draw. She wanted something in the physical realm. First of all, so she wouldn't have to worry about hauling water. But Jesus still talking about the spiritual realm. And Jesus said unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said unto him, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast said well, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that they says truly. And the woman saith unto him, Serve, I, I preserve, perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem, in this place, where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jew. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, and he has come, he will tell us all things. Jesus had her reveal her, her sin to him, and I think that's why God didn't mention her name, so we wouldn't know. This woman had just admitted to him, or verified by her not, no denial, that 
she was uh, adul adulterous. She'd had five husbands, and she was living with a man that wasn't her husband. That was a stony defense back then. So legally, if Jesus hadn't been who he was, he could have taken her out right then and stoned her because that's what the law demanded. And when her sin was made known to her, the first thing she did was change the subject. Well, my religion say, says that we're supposed to worship here. And we get that a lot here. When we count, encounter people with certain things, whether they're something that they've done or something that's going on in their life or whatever, the first thing they said, well, what church do you go to? We don't believe that. But Jesus cut it off right there. He says, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care what church you go to. He says, hey, neither this mountain or the other mountain, neither this church or this church, but God's seeking for those that are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. Those are the ones that God wants to worship. That's the kind of worship that God wants. And the woman is finally starting to get it because she says, I preserve you, perceive you are a prophet. And the woman saith unto him, I know the Messiah that is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I am that speak to thee, am he. Now here's this woman. Talk about politically incorrect. She's a harlot. She's an adulteress, a sinner by any stretch of the imagination. And Jesus tells her right out, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, I am the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been looking for. And the Pharisees kept trying to get him to admit that, and he wouldn't do it to them. They did everything they could trying to trap him into saying that he was. But here's a woman that finally, you know, Jesus made an appointment with her, admitted, here I am, I'm the Messiah. And we all have that encounter with Jesus. Here I am, I'm the Savior. I'm the one that has come. I sure I know about all your sins that you've had in the past, but it doesn't matter. I'm the Messiah. I'm the answer. I'm the answer you're looking for. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is this not the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of the city believed on him, for the sayings of the woman would testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they sought him, and they would tarry for, for two days, and more believed because of his word. And they saith unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy sayings, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. The woman left her water pot. That was, he just flipped her world all upside down. And that's what happens to us when, when we come to Christ. Our life is completely turned to 180 degrees. And she left that, and she went running into town to tell him, telling him she's broadcasting it. Hey, tell them, come see this man that told me everything I did. Now, I don't think I'd want to be running around town telling people some of the things that I've done, and I'm sure there's probably some here that you wouldn't want to be broadcast too loud either. But she says, come and see him. See that I've ever done. He told him. And that's the one thing she did. The first evangelist in the Bible was a woman, and one that most people wouldn't even invite into their church. But God chose her. For this, for this special time. And that's one thing that we can do as Christians. That's the one thing we have. We have our testimony that we can share with people. We can tell them, look where I was. This is where God brought me from. And that was her message. Look, what, look he told me everything I did. I found the Messiah. 
And that's what we can do. The problem that we have today is that most of us don't know our testimony. Yeah, if, if, if you ask, them, ask somebody share your testimony, so uh, you really haven't put a lot of thought to it. I tell people, go home, write down your testimony and practice it to yourself in the mirror. Because there's a lot of opportunities when you could share your testimony, but because you don't know it yourself, you can't share it. And that's the one thing this woman did, and that's the one thing we can do. And then we can invite him to come and see the one who changed our life. There is so much sickness, so much pain, so much suffering out in the world there, and we have the answer here. If they need comfort, he's the God of all comfort. He's the God who meets our needs. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's everything to me, and he wants to be everything to every, every person that we, we come in contact with. We need to be prepared to lead someone to Christ. If we had the opportunity, see, a lot of people aren't put in our path, path because we don't know how to lead them to him. How do we do it? The easiest way that I found is that you, there's a lot of different plans out there. They, there's the Roman road. There's the John road. There's all these other different ways that they are. What they are is a group of, of uh, scriptures that take a person from where they are to the cross. And the hardest thing about getting someone saved is getting them lost first. We live in a society where we think that good works is what's going to get you to heaven. You ask them, are you going to heaven? They'll say, yeah. Well, how do you know? Well, I'm good. I've done a lot of good things. And they think that their good outweighs their bad. But that isn't the case. So you write this, write one, all you got to memorize is one scripture then. And you write it in the bottom of your, uh, of your Bible. Or the, and then when you get to that scripture, you look down there and there's the next scripture that you can go to. And then you go to that scripture, and then there's the next, next scripture. And God will help you fill in the gaps. So if we're prepared to lead someone to God, then we're going to have the opportunities to do that. Jesus spent three and a half years with his disciples. And so we think, oh, well, they were more prepared than, I, than what I was, than what I am. How many of us have been saved for longer than three and a half years? A lot of us. So technically... We should be just as prepared that they are. I know. They got, to, they got to eat with him. They got to do all these other kind of things with Jesus and see him on, a, on all kinds of days. But, you know, that isn't a good excuse because, you know what? We have his word. We have his presence. And we can talk to him any time we want. So that ain't a good excuse. We can be as close to Jesus today as they were then. And thanks to the Holy Spirit, that's kind of like the umbilical cord between us and heaven, the Holy Spirit that keeps that bond and keeps that electric, electric light going back and forth, back and forth. It's the power cord. And as long as we keep that power cord plugged in, then we have the ability and the power to do whatever God has called us to do. And uh, I don't know how we can expect to win a world to Christ when all we do is sit in the pew week after week after week and we take in. And the only bad thing about that is it's kind of like you go to a gas station and you fill your car up with gas. Fill it to the brim and it's running over the tank. And then you take that out, hang it up, then you drive up to the next pump and you try to put some more gas in it. Well, you can't because it's full. And so you can't do anything. You can't get it. You can't suck any more in. And that's what we do when we come to church week after week after week. We take it in. We take it in. But we can't. If we don't give it out, then we got to end up with stale gas in our tank. So we have to give out every week to be able to 
we have to run it out so we can come in when we fill up on Sundays or Wednesdays or home fellowship times when we get there. We think that uh, we pay pastors and we pay evangelists and we pay missionaries to go out and do that job for us. But as I said before, it's our job. It's not theirs. Just theirs. It's their job. All of us have a different calling. Jesus had 12 disciples out of the thousands that followed Jesus. He chose. There were 70 sent out one time. And then there was the of the 12. And then there was the three that was kind of the inner circle of Christ. There was Christ. Now, God chooses people for different occupations. He's called to be a, a pastor. You may be called to, to work whatever job it is that you're working. That's your ministry. And God will give you the anointing to do that ministry just as much as it does him Sunday after Sunday up here preaching his word. Because you, you have to have God's anointing to do your job, whether it's in the full-time ministry or whether it's on the job anywhere else. You need God's anointing in his, in his, in his spirit to help you. <clears throat> if we're so busy that we can't even take the time to invite people to church or home fellowships, what does that say about us? Because that's the easiest way to reach somebody is by saying, hey, you know, we're going to have home fellowships starting up in our church. Why don't you come with us? That's the easiest way. And then it automatically opens an avenue for them to say, well, what's a home fellowship? What is that? And then you can tell them that it's basically a bunch of people coming. Well, not a bunch of people because a bunch may scare them off. <laughs> that's why they don't come to church because a bunch of people are there. A few people are gathered over to where we're going to study. We study the Bible, and we ask questions, and, and we kind of interact with each other, and we have some snacks, and, you know, we just have a good time. Now, doesn't that sound more appealing if you're a, uh, the woman at the well type or you're the religious type or whatever that type may be? That sounds more appealing. And, you know, Jesus had his own, own home fellowship group. They were the 12 disciples. That was his home fellowship group. And, they worked, and I think it worked rather well for him. It worked, worked really well. <laughs> the first churches that were started were started in homes. It's logical. In our society we live in today, we love getting together and we love eating, we love talking, and we love hanging out in the kitchen. And they were no different back then. And I went through and got a couple of scriptures so you'd kind of know that I just wasn't plucking that out of the air. Not that you thought I would, but Colossians 4.15 says, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nephens, and the church which is in his house. Philemon 1.2, To our beloved Aphia and Achippus, and fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Peter had a church in his house. When we were over in Israel, we saw it. And you know what? These pews are a lot more comfortable looking to sit in than what that place was. So thank you, Jesus, for nice, soft pews, nice tables to lean against at home, and, and a nice coffee pot to brew coffee with and all that kind of stuff. You might be saying, well, what do I get from home fellowships? What is that going to do for me? Because, you know, I'm, in, I, I'm into salvation for the, ben for the bennies, you know. You get heaven, you get your sins forgiven, you get a better life, life and life more abundantly. Well, home fellowships, I wrote down a few things. Number one, it gives you a place to learn, a place to be discipled. We had our uh, Bible study last night in our home, and one of the couples, they said, I've learned more about the Bible and God's Word in six months coming to these than I have in five years sitting in a church pew. 
That isn't because I'm, my husband and I are such marvelous teachers or we have such special insight or anything like that. It's just the opportunity where people, there's no intimidation about um, getting together and asking something. If you don't understand something, you don't understand when pastor's preaching, you know, you can say, hey, pastor, what'd you say? I don't understand you. Would you repeat that again? Because it's not the proper procedure to handle in this kind of environment. But in your home fellowship environments, you can ask anything you want, and you don't have to worry about it because the only, only stupid question is the one unanswered or not asked. And it doesn't matter. I mean, maybe the person there don't know the answer, but I guarantee you they're going to search for it. But by the time you get through brainstorming the, a- the answer with the people who are there, you're going to come up with some pretty good information that you didn't know. And we learn we learned a lot in them because of the interacting. And then we get a bunch of people together because two or three are gathered in my name. He's there. And when he's there, the anointing falls on, on whatever it is you're talking about. And all of a sudden, you come up with an answer and say, man, I'd, I'd never seen that before. Wow, that's cool. And that happens a lot. So that's another benefit. Another one is you get to know people better. I mean, I know a lot of people that are here, but I don't know you really, really well. And you probably don't know me really, really well either. And maybe you don't want to. That's okay. <laughs> but it gives you an opportunity to be closer to the people in a group than you would normally get to know them. And it gives you someone to pray for you every day. Now, how exciting is that? It's neat when you know that somebody's praying for you every day. There's just something about that power, knowing that someone's praying for you, that just helps you get through the day, helps you that extra day you get up and you may not feel as well as you do another day. And it gives you that extra connection to God. Say, oh, somebody's going to pray for me today. I'm going to feel great. And it gives you someone to pray for. Because we live in a society that's basically so selfish and so self-centered, and I don't mean in the church, but generally speaking in the world at, at large, it's me, 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 my, 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 what can I going to get? I want this, I want this, I want this. And you listen to their prayers, and it's almost like a, 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 a list of Santa Claus. This is what I want today, God, please. This is what I want. I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. So when we pray for other people, it takes our focus off of our needs and onto someone else's needs, and onto someone else's life. And when we do that, the funny thing about it is God works more through us to meet these needs than when we're actually praying for them. We're so concentrated on them, we can't yield to God. So that's, a, that's another thing it does for. And a prayer chain. That's when you get, uh, you're really glad you have a home fellowship group. You make a phone call, and you have everyone in your group is going to pray for that special need. And there are special times when you need extra prayer. If you lose a loved one, your kid's sick, you're in the hospital, you're in a wreck, all kinds of things that happen. At that moment, you're thankful that you can make a phone call and you have all these people that are going to pray, pray for you. And God's strength will help you get through that. That's awesome. I just, it's not going to get rid of all your problems, but it'll give you that extra strength to get through it. And that's, what, that's another reason that it's important. We were a part of a home fellowship in Colorado for eight years. We led one over there. And those people became so close to us. They were closest to us than our own families, our own kids. And the intimacy that you gain as you grow together and that everything becomes important to you. Just like we, we, we pray for your uh, dog to be, to be healed and to be well. Well, the whole group would be praying for your dog. A lot of people don't think we should pray for animals. 
and pray for these kind of things. But, you know, God says if it matters to you, it matters to him. And it's nice to have a group of people that you come together and they don't laugh at you and think you're stupid or, or an idiot for, for wanting them to pray for their dogs. Because my dogs are important to me. I like the little guys, the little girls. I shouldn't call them guys. I might not like that. I like them, you know. And you get withdrawal syndrome if you're not around there because I have to have my face licked at least once a day, you know, or I go into withdrawal. So that's important. And it's nice to be able to have someone to call. There's nothing worse than going through a problem alone. I remember a, a, a story about the um, um, elderly man that lived next to a young family. And he had lost his wife. And the little boy was four years old. And he told his mom, I'm going over and talk to Mr. Hansen. And she said, okay. And so he went over there. And he was gone for about an hour. And he come back. And the mother was kind of curious, you know, because he was, you know, kind of a little young to be able to be that sensitive to a, a loss of something. And uh, she, mother says, well, what did, you, what did you talk about while you was there? And the little boy says, oh, we didn't talk about anything. I just climbed up on his lap and helped him cry. And that's what home fellowship gives you. It's someone that you can climb up on their lap and help you cry. Help you ask God for the need that's in your life. Ask him to help you through that dark time in your life right now. That's what home fellowship is. And after we were involved in this home fellowship for eight years, I wondered how in the world did I ever survive without one? I was kind of a little negative about going. We just kind of went because people that we knew in the, in the church invited us. And we thought, well, we'll go. You know, I don't think it's going to be beneficial. But I'm like, can you talk about addictive? And it really broke our heart to be have to leave, you know, our first family, because that's what they called it. it. was Aurora First Assembly was the name of the church. We called them First Families. And we still pray for them every day. And we're going to go see them this next spring, and we're really looking forward to seeing them again. But they're on our prayer list even now. Every day we pray for them because they're family to us. And we talk to them and on the phone and all those kind of things. And we don't know how we ever got along without them. My goal for this church is that all of us become the disciples Christ intended us to be. Because that's the number one priority. And that's pastor's number one priority. It's for us to be what Christ wants us to be. To be able to reach out to our friends and our neighbors. Outside this building. Outside these four walls. To be able to reach out. Oh, I've got some. Thank you. So, card up. The mission field starts outside your door of your house, outside the door of this church. <clears throat> and Jesus died for them. Jesus died for them just the same as he died for me. And he loves them just the same. And when we draw closer to Jesus, the closer you get to God, the closer you get to Jesus, you start feeling his heartbeat. And his heartbeat is... Reach the lost. Reach the lost. There's a world out there dying. There's a world I came to save. Reach the lost. Reach the lost. And that's the goal of pastor. That's the goal of home fellowships. Promote church growth. Not so much because of the numbers, but because we know that everyone we bring in, that's one less the devil doesn't have under their power. That's one more that's going to go to heaven. 
So we reach out to our loved ones. We reach out to our friends. We reach out to our neighbors. And it gives us a good, a good way to meet our neighbors. We live in houses. How many of us know our neighbors? We've lived in a society where we come home and we shut the doors. And that's the way we spend our lives. We turn on the TV. Oh, maybe if we feel really religious tonight, we'll watch a TBN. Instead of CSI. Well, not instead of CSI. I can't do that. But maybe TBN. <laughs> and we shut the doors of our house. And we don't look any further. My four and no more. My family's okay. They're going to heaven. But if your family's like my family, most of my, a lot of my family isn't going to heaven right now. And I pray every day that God will send someone to reach them because they don't live here. They live far away. We pray for them. But I pray, God, let light come into their life. Let someone come to reach them. And sometimes they'll listen to someone else when they won't listen to you because Jesus had that problem in his hometown. They would not receive his works and all the things he wanted to do in his hometown because, oh, he's, he was raised here. Isn't this Mary's kid? And that's what you get in your own family. Oh, you're just my brother. You're just my sister. Oh, what are you trying to tell me this stuff for? So we do have that to deal with. But Jesus loves the lost, and that's his heart. We have to quit as a body of Christ cursing the darkness, and start lighting a light. Say, what do you mean by that? We spend so much time. We go, we, we picket abortion clinics. We picket this. Would they stand up at the, the temple during conference and start yelling out these, this stuff to these people? You're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. Jesus said to light a light. He said, that's how you're going to dispel the darkness. It isn't going to be by legislating it because you can legislate all you want doesn't matter because people, if their hearts aren't changed, nothing will change. It can be against the law to have an abortion, but people will still go have them. But if, they, if their heart is changed, you don't need any laws for it because God's laws will be, is written in our hearts. And his laws will keep us from doing those kind of things. So we got to quit cursing the darkness and spend that same time that we talk about, oh, I wish they'd do with their abortion. I wish they'd do this. I wish they'd do that. If we spent that same energy and that same time praying, God, help me be a light. Let me be a light. He says, be a light on a hill. Don't hide that light under a bushel. Don't come home and shut the door of your house and let your light be blocked out from the world. Let them know that a Christian lives here. Let them know that if I have a problem, I can run over there. And it's amazing because when people have a problem in their life, if someone dies, you're the first person they call. Would you pray? I lost my mother. Would you pray? My, my son is sick or that, those kind of things. I know it. When I, was, when I was working, people, you know, they'd laugh at you and all these kind of things. But when they had a need, Sandra, would you pray for me because this happened or that happened? And then, we, then our light can shine. And that's what draws people to Christ, is when we let our light shine. And the easiest way to reach those people is by inviting them to home fellowships or to church. Because, like I said, it opens up that doorway. It opens up a ray of communication. Maybe the people don't even know you even go to church. Who knows? And it's a good way to tell them, hey, I go to church. Not only do I go to church, I'm a Christian. And I serve God. And if you ever have a need and you need somebody to pray for me, I'm right here for you. I'll come over and I'll pray with you. And it opens up a venue. And they'll remember that, especially when a problem comes. Our pastor's vision is for home fellowship groups. That's his vision. That should be enough. 
just right there because he's our leader and we're supposed to follow what he wants and we're supposed to follow his vision. But when you start looking at that vision, you realize it's the best way in our society that we live in to be able to reach this community for Jesus. You know that God's vision and God's heart, is, God has dropped that vision into his heart to be able to reach out in this way. Now my question is, are we going to stand around and gaze, waiting for Jesus to come, and just hoping, oh, if I can just make it through? Are we going to wait for someone else to go reach our family? Are we going to wait for someone else to come and knock on our neighbor's door and invite him to church, invite him to home fellowship groups, invite him to meet Jesus? Are we going to wait for someone else, or are we going to do it? But Jesus said, it's our responsibility. It's yours, and it's mine. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That includes everybody. Everyone we, f- we come face-to-face with, everyone we, p- we stop and pass in the street, they're either going to heaven or they're going to hell. And when we catch that reality, then we actually see how great the job is. But we have a great God. Pastor talked about how big God was. He can hold the whole universe in his hand. And there's no problem that you're facing today that God can't inter- intervene with. But home fellowships, I want all of us to be a part of it. Because I know at the end of a certain period of time after you've kind of dove in, that you're going to be glad that you did. Do you want me to close service? Jesus loves all of us. And I'm thankful for the day that he reached down and he changed my life. And that's my desire that I can be, make a difference to, to someone else's life. I can be a difference in, the, in my neighbor's lives, in my friend's lives, and in my family's lives. And I'm thankful for that. And I know that every one of us here want that. And I just want to know how many of us are going to say yes. How many of us are going to say, I want to be part of home fellowship? Let me see some hands. Okay. It's a good foundation. Well, I know that as we get on with this training that we do, that we're going to start today, and we actually start to them. I just implore all of you, when we get them set up, be a part of them. Find out what a change it can make in your life. Because you'll be surprised. There's nothing better than sitting around a coffee table. I can see Jesus sitting around the kitchen table having some coffee and talking. I can see him doing that. I can see him having fun, enjoying life, telling jokes. Because 